0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We are continuing, as, uh, um, as Michaela was saying, preaching through a book in the Bible that takes months. So, um, so we are doing that. If that's what you're looking for, hooray, this, you're in the right place. Um, We are kind of literally in the center of the book of Galatians. Last week I spoke about how Paul was telling us what the purpose of the law was. Um, If the law was done away with, then why have it in the first place? And so we were reminded last week that the law restrained us in the the context of sin. It also provokes and helps us understand what sin was. It revealed sin in us and it also led us to grace. Now, Paul continues talking to a church um, in Galatia where he says um, that I understand that there are people that are coming in and are saying to you that you you don't understand that you're not fully in the faith, uh, that you kind of have gospel light or a different gospel and you need to add to your faith all of these rules and regulations that the Jewish people were used to in terms of festivals, in terms of eating, and more specifically in terms of circumcision. And so last week he used one analogy, this week he continues with this thought process using another one, and so I'm picking up in Galatians 3, verse 24 through to 4, verse 7. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father." and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, in the Greco-Roman, and, and Greco-Roman culture in that time, a child, regardless of which family they were in, was under guardians until the time that they were 14, and then they were under tutors and teachers and trustees until the time they were around 24, or until such a time as their father decided that they were ready to basically take over the household, be, become the man of the house. Now, um, it's not as intense as a little bit north of that in Sparta in Greece where a baby would be born and he would be bathed in wine. And if the elders of the city didn't like the look of this baby, then they would leave him out for a night um, in the cold. And if he survived, he was worthy to be a Spartan. Then what would, be, what would happen is he would be under the... Uh, the care of his mother and father until he was age seven, and then he would be handed over to trainers in order to do one thing. Um, And there's this there's this idiom in, um, in Sparta that basically, Spartans are warriors. And there was the sense in which this child is going to be formed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to be a warrior. Now, we, we don't really understand those concepts today. It's kind of weird. The closest thing we have is like boarding school, and most of us kind of grew up here, so we don't really understand the idea of sending a child away. But what we do have is we have babysitters, Right? Most of you have babysitters. Most of you have sports coaches. Most of you have teachers, uh, where your child is, in a sense, under the guardianship and tutelage of those men and women. It is a little different today, uh, in the sense that it's more of a client relationship, um, and so the child has a lot of power um, in this relationship. Many years ago, a child would sit down with their teacher, child parent conference, and the teacher would say to the, uh, the parent, hey, you know, your child is not meeting expectations, they're not listening, they're not doing their work, and the parent would turn to the child and say, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and now you sit down at a parent-teacher conference, and the teacher says to the child, you know, you're not pulling your weight, you're not meeting expectations, you're not getting your A's or doing your homework, and the parent turns to the teacher and says, what's the matter with you? And so what's happened is we've pushed away this responsibility, um, and that is not the way in which we are taught to actually raise children, and that is not the way in which this picture that we have of guardians and tutors is to be understood. Ultimately, what happens is we come to an age where we don't need guardians and tutors anymore. Imagine how weird it would be for Aaron, who babysits Sean's children, to babysit Sean. I was thinking about that. And, uh, and I mean, if anyone is possibly bold enough to do it, it's Aaron. But, but it would be weird, right? Because Sean is mature. And so what Paul is saying to them is the law was a guardian that protected and educated and preserved Israel. And through Israel, the Messiah would come, and the Messiah was for everyone through the promise of Abraham. Christ's life, death, and resurrection means that you... As, as people of God are now mature, and you don't need a guardian anymore. You are mature. Now we know that maturity is not doing the opposite of the values that were taught to you, whether you were in school, or whether you were being coached or through your parents. Maturity is being able to exercise a choice, understanding the reason why you're, under, why, why you're exercising that choice, and particularly within the context of spiritual development, understanding that that choice is for your own flourishing and for God's glory. When we're mature, Paul is not saying that we just do away with any of the moral law. We covered that last week. We don't do away with all of the moral law. We're not saying that we don't behave in the way that God inten- intends for us to behave, but we don't do it out of fear. We don't do it out of coercion. We do it with a sense of joy and gratitude. And later on in Galatians 5, Paul will talk about how gratitude and joy is what fuels the ability for us to live a life that is bearing fruit of the Spirit. So guardianship has ended, and then separation has ended. I'm Greek, and in northern Greece, there's a country called Albania. And if if in our family, if you really want to insult a Greek, you call him an Albanian, okay? Um, Now, you will not really understand why that is such a thing, but the idea is that we're kind of the same, but we are separate, and so we speak the same language, we have the same culture, but if you really want to offend someone, like my cousin, I called my cousin last week, and he says, what's up, Albanian? And I said, what's up, shorty? And that's kind of how we interact with each other, but it is, it is a bit of a jab, you know? There, there is this thing in us about, you know, within humanity where we're always looking for a group that is lower than us in order to be able to separate ourselves from them. I grew up in South Africa, and you would assume that having been victimized through apartheid and racism, um, that people in South Africa would be less likely Uh, to actually introduce new forms of xenophobia and racism. And yet, because of the sin that is so deeply embedded in us, uh, we have situations, particularly in South Africa, where you have statements like this. You are too black to be South African. Mm. And so other Africans are looking at immigrants from Northern and Central Africa and saying, you're not part of us. You are too black to be a South African. Your accent is not South African. You are separate from us. And in Paul's day, there is this prayer that Paul would have prayed, and all Jewish men would have prayed, and they would have woken up every morning, and they would have said, thank God that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. And now Paul says in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for all are one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Now, this was an issue of access. So, when a Jewish man would say, thank God that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman, he was talking about access to the temple. So, let me show you exactly what he's talking about. The temple had various ways of access. This is a picture of the temple. This is the Holy of Holies, the holy place. There was a literal separation. There were walls of separation between Gentiles and the rest of the Jewish nations. If you wanted to get close to God as a Gentile, that's as close as you could become. Now, what if you were a Jewish woman? Well, if you were a Jewish woman, funnily enough, you actually had more access than a Gentile male you could come into the court of the woman, which was inside the place of the temple and yet outside of the court of Israel. So you could kind of hang out here, and this is where the woman would hang out, and this is where anyone that was unclean could hang out. But the court of Israel was reserved for those that had done everything that was required of them in the context of the law, that they were Jewish males that were circumcised and they could participate within this court. And within this court, only priests could participate. Are you getting the picture? There's a picture of access. And so what Paul is saying in this context is that not only, not only are, are, is there a reversal of the negative connotations of you being a Greek or the negative connotations of you being a slave, or the negative connotations of you being female, there is also the application and assignment of the same rights that are given to Jewish males are given to you. We are all heirs of the same thing. So a Greek female slave, the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, has the same access, access to the riches of Christ as a free, clean Jewish male. This was absolutely revolutionary at that stage. This would have blown the Judaizers' mind, and this is why it was so hard for people to understand that it was only through exercising faith in Jesus by the grace and mercy of God could I come into full freedom without having to jump through all of these hoops. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's critical to understand that they are not being told... Not to be Greek. They're not being told not to act like men or women. But their confidence cannot be in any of those things. And also, this cannot be a reason to exclude someone else from the faith of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. The point is not to merge into some kind of nebulous, indistinct mass where we all look, speak, talk act the same way. That is not the point. I grew up, like I said, in various places, and a friend of mine, like I said, most of my life I grew up in in, in Africa, a friend of mine said to me, you whiteys, that's what we were called, says, you whiteys, you always sing the same thing in the same way. Why is that? And I'm like, I don't know, we just grew up, you know, like someone sings a song and you sing that. Because when when you're in an African church, what will happen, and Karen said that last time, is someone in the back will start singing, and then you sing in the round, where's Patrick? Like different people will play different parts, and it's like people know what they're doing, and it's like one big mess, and I'm like, I don't know, bro, and he says, I think I know what it is, because I walked into one of your churches, and I saw this hymn book, and so you showed me this hymn book, and um, it says, with one voice. So I think that's why you you whiteys just sing the same song in the same way all the time, because your hymn book says with one voice. I, I thought it was funny, so anyway. Those of you that have been around the world will know that the way in which we pray is also very, very different. If I say to you, okay, let's pray, immediately most of us will do this, right? Or assume the position, right? Assume the position. Now, I remember when, when, when I was in Africa and, and Asia, people would say, let's pray, and people would burst out wherever they were. They would lift their hands. Why? Because Scripture says, I want people who are praying to lift their hands, and they would lift their hands, and they would pray. Dear Jesus, I want to thank you for my salvation. I we, the guy hasn't even said what we're praying for. All he said <laughs> in that moment is, let's pray, and everyone has just burst forth in prayer. And I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm a little kind of, I don't know what's going on, but I am so, so grateful that I get to experience that. It is very, very different from our prayer meetings, right? It's like where you're sitting down and your head is bowed and you're like, oh, he's wearing vans this morning. And you're looking down and so you're going to gather, okay, it's time to pray. And you're like, okay, who's going to pray first? Am I? Is it me? Is it? And, then, and then you do this, you kind of look up. Yeah. Uh, Sean's here. He'll pray first. (laughs) Sean is not praying first. This is getting awkward. And then you decide decide you're going to pray, and then someone else prays at exactly the same time as you, right? And so instead of continuing to pray, both of you at the same time, like you would if you were in Asia or if you're in Africa, both of you stop, right? And now there's like this double awkwardness. So so, both... Okay, no, you go. No, you go. No, you. Okay, okay. And then people are like, oh my goodness, what is happening here right now? <laughs> I'm so grateful for the differences that actually make our faith um, more enjoyable. I'm so grateful for the fact that around the world, the way that Jesus is worshiped is different and unique. And yeah, it definitely challenges my cultural perspective, but it's not. Wrong, and what Paul is saying is there. There is the sense in which people are asking you to do and act um, externally in a very certain way, so that you'll be accepted into the beloved. And that is not, not at all, what God has in mind. In Revelation, it says that when we worship God together, we will worship, and people from every tribe and nation and tongue. There will not be the heavenly language of Greek only spoken. In heaven. It won't be the case. As sad as that may be, that, that won't be the case. Every tribe, nation, and tongue will worship God. In the words of the theologian Bono, we're one, but we're not the same. <laughs> we're one, but we're not the same. I can be a child of God and have a different culture. I can be a child of God and have a different station In life, I can be a child of God and of a different gender. We cannot take pride or hope in our earthly status. That is the problem. The problem is when we elevate one culture above another culture and actually say, this is a better way to worship. This is a better way to pray. Christ's free gift of righteousness is without earning or merit, so no one can say that I deserve it. As a clean Jewish male, I deserve it. That was the problem. And what Paul is saying, no, none of us deserve it. Not even those that were kept as guardians by the law, none of us deserve it. It is a free gift of grace. This was absolutely revolutionary. And so remember right at the beginning of Galatians when I talked about how Paul bounced back from Antioch to Tarsus back to Galatia. I want to read this verse from Acts 11. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people and in antioch the disciples were first called christians in antioch was the first place that they were called little anointed ones why because the culture there had a problem they were like we can't call them greeks because they're not all greek we can't call them jews because they're not all jews they're gathering to worship we don't know what's what is the one thing that defines this group of people that they are little anointed ones, that they are little Christ followers. That's what we'll call them. That's where the genesis of the word Christian comes from. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean now necessarily what it meant then. It doesn't mean now a group of people whose primary identity is solidly orbed around the hub of Christ. Now it means that we believe certain political and biblical things and that we are separatists. Let's make the little Christian, mean what it used to mean, a diverse group of people that are bound by one thing, grace and mercy in our Savior Jesus Christ. So if guardianship is over and separation is over, as Paul has said, what is the the main learning from this? And the main learning that Paul leads the churches of Galatia into is this idea of adoption, and the idea of adoption that gives us a new father and a new family. In those days, a childless, wealthy man would adopt one of his slave's children, and that child would immediately cease to become a slave. They would become a full son in that person's home, and they would become an heir of all that master had, his entire estate. Now, let me say something about sons here. Um, As men, we've got to be used to the idea of us being part of the bride of Christ, And there is a a symbolic and metaphoric richness that comes from the idea of being able to connect with the bride of Christ. Sons of God is, is not a gender separate term. But it's important to use that, A, because Scripture uses it. But it's important to understand also in those days that only sons, and only the first son, would receive an inheritance. And so that's why Paul is using that language. He's not just saying that only men are, um, are able to receive this inheritance. He's using the language of the metaphor in, in terms of that. So don't feel separated from this, but we're going to use those terms. When the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem buy back those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's interesting. We as a church are um, part of Foster the City. We have a number of foster families in our community. Um, And so this idea of adoption is, is quite a rich and practical thing for us. And I was looking through this week some of the um, commitments that you make when you adopt a child. Um, And this is a very secular, there is nothing in there about God, but this is secularly what you are expected to do if you're going to adopt a child, in California at least. They ask you these questions. Do you understand that you will be legally responsible for this child and their actions? Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Do you have sufficient resources to provide financially for this child? Yes, I do. Are you willing and able to accept the responsibility for their emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical well-being? Yes, I do. This was interesting. Do you understand that this child will become your legal heir? Now, that's something that the state of California has put into place when you go into the adoption ceremony. The richness of that comes out of exactly what Paul is saying here, that we are adopted into his family, that God takes full responsibility for who we are and what we have done, that he has the resources to care for us, that it is his key and primary responsibility to care for us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically, and we will become his heir. J.R. Packer puts it this way, that justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing, because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. And last week we spoke about how the law helps us get to that place of understanding that we don't have that peace. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. The purpose of absolution is adoption. Absolution, the forgiveness of our sins, the justification of ourselves, is not the end game. The end game is that we would be invited into his family. Absolution is the necessary condition for adoption. Judgment is not the ultimate purpose. Love is. Penalty reversal is not the destination, presence is. Now, within the context of the modern church, we've been accused of making too much of God the judge. We maybe speak too much about the method, penal substitutionary atonement, the fact that Jesus was the substitutionary sacrifice that had to die on our behalf. We maybe speak too much about the reason that sin created a debt that must be paid, What we don't speak about with equal affection and love is the outcome. That intimate fellowship with the God who created us, loved us, and because of that, paid the price so that He could welcome us into intimate fellowship with Him. God is not an irritated judge whose hands are tied by some kind of cosmic, mandatory, legal, maximum, or minimum um, sentence. He is not. He became the sacrifice. Our debt is paid in full so that he could become our engaged and loving father. That is the point. Appropriating adoption affects the way that I view God. It also affects the way that I view the church or family. Because the idea of adoption is not just a personal intimate issue. It has massive communal ramifications. Because together we represent God. We are either a crowd of slaves and students or we are a family of sons. If all we offer this world is a a set of justified slaves, then our lives and message will not be compelling or truly represent Christ. As I said, we have foster families in the context of our congregation. And one of the things that I asked Ryan, I called him and I said, hey, do Michaela and Corey called Gio. So they're currently fostering two kids. One of them is Gio, and um, one of them is Abby. So I said, and Gio has been with them for what, almost two years? Yeah. So I said, do they call him brother? Like, how do they call him? What do they call him? They said, yeah, of course they call him brother. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. It kind of doesn't though, because when you look at Ryan and April, like smaller, blonde, kind of orange county, right? And then, sorry, I mean, not just Orange County, I know. Hey, don't worry, April, Val is, you know, offended enough on your behalf, okay? You look at Gio, though, he's going to grow up to be a linebacker, okay? He is big, he is tough, he is black, and you look at that and you're like, well, but hang on, he is my brother. Ryan says to me, what else would they call him? So this, this difference, the this separation is broken down, why? Because there's this sense of... This person has been adopted into our family. Of course, they are my brother. I said, what does Gio call you? He says, he calls me dad. I'm like, but he's not actually formally adopted yet. He says, it doesn't matter how long or how short it is. For now, I'm his dad. Why? Because he's been adopted into my family. So this isn't just a thing between Gio and Ryan. This is a thing between Geo and the Canons. Not only that, the, the, the awesome thing is this is a thing between Geo and us. Gio has the opportunity to taste something of us, however long or short he happens to be in this community, of actually saying, I belonged. Not because I looked like everyone, not because I sounded like everyone, but because I was adopted into this family, and I'm a brother and sister. And I love the language of brother and sister. I, I I'm not saying we should return, brother Sean, sister Valerie. <laughs> I'm not saying we should return to that. What I am saying, though, is there should be this sense of more responsibility. Like when when you call someone brother, sister, there's a sense of familial connection, but there's also a sense of responsibility. I watch, um, my my form of exercise these days is to watch exercise videos on my phone. (laughs) You all know you do that, right? You're like, I need to exercise, also me, watching exercise on my phone. Now watch this guy, he, he walks into the gym, That guy, they're just part of the gym, they don't, they don't know each other, he's put up his little camera, he's gonna, he's gonna hit a one rep max. And a one rep max, all you have to do is literally lift this weight once, that's it. And so that's why he's recording it. And, and so he goes down, he goes down, and then he's struggling up, and he comes up, and there's a guy seated over there, you can see him, he says, you better not just do one. So then, so then he goes down again. Now, this is one rep max, and, he, and he's slowly coming up, and he's like, that's it, don't drop it, let's go, three. And he does five of those things. He was, he was wanting to hit a one rep max. That guy in there, who wasn't his brother, who wasn't his trainer, took responsibility and said, don't drop it, man, don't drop it. And because of that encouragement, because of that engagement, that guy was able to do more. I think part of the reality of actually being part of a family of God is actually saying, In some way, I am my brother's keeper. In some way, I am responsible, I know, I know. In some way, I am responsible (laughs) for what happens with my brother. It affects the way I view myself. Adoption affects the way I view God, whether I see him just as judge or whether I see him as engaging father. It affects the way that I view my family. It also affects the way that I view myself. I can see myself as a student. And I can understand absolution in a theological and mental way, but I don't fully experience adoption, because my point of connection with God is through intellect, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's insufficient. Maybe there's a sense in which emotion is kind of an enemy for me, because I've seen people manipulate through emotion, or it's unreliable. The problem is, at? the core of every human being, you are not an equation-solving robot. You are not a philosophical kind of riddle solver. You are designed for relationship. And maybe what's happened in you is this idea of being under guardianship or being a student is that your intellect that is designed to augment your understanding and reality of God as Father has actually become a bit of a barrier. For you experiencing tangibly the sense of adoption. Or maybe you're just more slave. Now this is true. We, we may not feel like orphans because orphans don't have a home. So we have a home. We're, we're in the faith. We understand that, that we have a home. But being in a home does not automatically make you a son or a daughter. Because as Paul said, you can be in a home as a slave. And so what would identify me as a slave? What identifies me as a slave is is that I reject my needs, whether they're physical or whether they're spiritual or emotional or relational, because I'm used to going without them being fulfilled. And on the surface, I don't feel sorry for myself. um, But deep down, I feel abandoned and resentful because I have to take care of myself. And ultimately, as a slave... My identity is in what I can do and produce because that's what a slave is for. What can you do? What can you produce? A slave's only purpose is to produce. You, you don't see slaves in that context that are for other things. Slaves are more performance oriented. Now, you may not identify as a slave. If I said to you, do you, f- do you feel like a slave or a son? You'd be like, I feel like a son. But you may act like one. And you may act like a slave because there's, there's two types of slaves. There's the one slave that's try harder, do more. And there's the other slave that has just taken on the mantle of slavery. Nothing matters. Just give up. Paul talks about that. You can be a slave to the flesh. You can be a slave to the law. Neither actually gives you freedom. You can also be a slave to your emotions. That's one of the problems is that, is that just because the student has pushed away their emotions, you can become a slave to your emotions where they completely drive you. But you are sons because the spirit of his son is in your heart. Because you can cry out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, a son. This cry out is not like, hey, this cry out is a loud, emotional, guttural cry. When we're in that place, we don't say, God... Almighty God, my reconciler and substitutionary sacrifice. When Jesus was in the garden, that's what he cried out. Abba. In in his most painful moment, where he needed God to be powerful and say, take this cup from me. He didn't say, God, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, which he is. He said, Abba, take this cup from me. However, not my will, but yours be done. It was in that moment where he cried out an intimate, relational, personal response. When Erin was three, for some reason, she went through a phase where she called me Father Nick. I don't know where it came from. It was bizarre. It it just was like Father Nick, and I'm like, Daughter Erin. This is weird, right? It didn't last long, but man, when Dad came back, It just felt, sounded so good. Father Nick, true. Dad, true. One just speaks of intimacy and closeness. Abba, my father. Mm -hmm. Disciples, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Our father. Mm -hmm. That's how you start. Intimacy, closeness. Band, you can come up. You know, the Bible is our adoption certificate. It clearly states what our rights are. But let me tell you, if you're an adopted child, and you're in pain, you don't go to your dad and say, Dad, show me that adoption certificate. You go to your dad and you say, Dad, I'm in pain. And I know that you are here, because you promised to be here. And I need a hug, and I need you to help me. And I know this is complicated, guys. Because sons are secure, because they can cry out for help, and they, the reason why they can cry out for help is because they know that when they cry out for help, they're, they have been helped. I know that there are times where there is not, a, not your experience. The sons are able to express their emotions. They're not hidden, and they're not ignored, and they're not ruled by them because they, they are regularly taken to their father. And I know that hasn't always been the case. I know for me, even as I'm preparing for this, I'm getting kind of bullets from both sides. I'm remembering my history with my dad who loved me, but who wasn't that emotionally available to me, but I know that he loves me. And I'm also the one that is not just receiving pain, but I'm also the one that's handing out pain as a dad, knowing that not because I want to, but because of my sinfulness, I'm also going to wound my children, and their idea of God the Father is going to be shaped by that. So I'm getting hit at by all circumstances. But God is a kind Father, my everlasting Father, my Abba Father. That isn't just in our father wounds that we need to push that away. Because for some of us, we've had good relationships with our dad and family relationships that have able been able to give us a good picture of what God our Father looks like. Some of us have received hurts within the context of family. If I've been adopted into this family, yet I've been wounded by this family. And I want to say this morning, there is healing available. There is healing if you feel separated from God, or you feel separated from this community. There is healing because the same Spirit That raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that is in you that cries out, Abba Father. If you're in pain and struggling to live in your sonship and you're living more like a student or a slave, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that enables you to cry out, Abba Father, you're no longer a slave but a son. If your earthly experience of fathering or trust relationships, has been so damaged that it's preventing a deeper relational, emotional, tangible connection with God, there is healing and forgiveness because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, cries out, Abba Father. Father, as we just turn, as we just turn our attention to you, our perfect Father, I want to pray, Spirit of God, that you would do what your scripture says you have already done, that we would experience that in a fresh way, that because we are sons and daughters of the living God, that we would experience a sense of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, that we would know that we are no longer slaves, we are no longer students, we are sons. And because we are sons, we are heirs with Christ. You haven't just rescued us, taken away the negative. You have lavished on us grace and mercy. Father, help us to know that on a deep spiritual level this morning.
1: As we um, we come to the table, we come to this moment, I'm just grateful that we do this week in and week out. It's it's such a tangible reminder of the reality of what Nick preached about that the Son has made a way for us all to be sons and daughters, to be brothers and sisters, to uh, stand in the new reality of the new creation uh, in His house and Um, There's going to be people, there's already some folks to my left, to to your right, after we take the elements, maybe as Nick was preaching, maybe you felt a sense of uh, feeling stuck kind of in performance uh, or fatigue, like you're a slave, like the idea of just being a free son and daughter, it's kind of like, yeah, but, yeah, but Um, there's good news for you today. There, you, can, you can let go of that, yeah, but, uh, and step into the finished work of Christ and learn to respond in grace. And, um, and so if that's you, I'd really encourage you to receive prayer this morning. Maybe you're also maybe somebody who is kind of stuck in the intellect that, that Nick was talking about, stuck in the sense of being a student and feeling a distance from God. Um, I'd encourage you to receive prayer as well. Um, and maybe you're somebody that has experienced uh, wounding within the context of your family or within the context of the church. Uh, and there is someone here this morning who is the consummate friend who always lays down his life for you. And there is healing for that as well. Um, we come to this, this table, this bread and this cup and reminded of Jesus' words in John 15 says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has a greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves any longer because the slave or the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me. I chose you, I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Lord, we hold in our hands the symbol of your body broken for us, and we receive it again from your hand. You are our Savior, and you are our friend. We take and remember you. And Jesus, we also take the cup of the new covenant of your blood shed for us to deal with our sins, to bring us into the family of God so that it's possible and is true that our hearts can cry out the spirit of God within us, Abba, Father. We take this in rejoicing and gratitude For the forgiveness that we have experienced and the freedom that you've purchased for us. We do this in remembrance of you. The band is going to continue to play. Um, We're going to kind of end the formal part of our gathering. But I want to encourage you, if maybe God's still dealing with you as the band plays, just kind of linger for a moment. If you need prayer, like I said, there's people here to my left, to your right. please please receive prayer. There is healing this morning. There is is a sense that God wants to to bring freedom to you uh, this morning. For the rest of us, we're going to be out on the back uh, hanging out. We'd love to get to know you. Say hello. Uh, We love you. Go love one another and be the church.